So there's there's a, one of two takeaways, right? First, black hits. If black hits, I'm like, boom, it's going to be an amazing day. Let's get after it. Yeah. If black doesn't hit, I go, all my bad luck's out of the way. Let's get after it. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Shallow. That was the answer to a Jeopardy question, and now you're supposed to say what the Jeopardy question is. What do you even say? Cello? Yeah. Don't know. What is Yo-Yo Ma? Famous for playing. <laughs> hello. How you be doing, man? Wait, that was a hello joke. Yeah, it's you know, everything's <laughs> a, everything in life is a hello joke. Killing me over here. Diggles, I got a question for you. What's the nicest restaurant you've ever been to? Oh, I don't know. This week or in general? In general. I once Lifetime. ate at, uh, at Minna, Michael Minna's restaurant. I, I don't think it's around anymore in uh, San Francisco. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Michelin. I like that. There was a Italian place back in San Francisco, not to get too deep in the weeds, that was like always rated as the world's top restaurant. One time I waited like three hours for that. It's worth it. Wow. Worth it. So when you go to these elaborate dining experiences, um, are you ever taken by the decor? Because I lately I've been like just blown away by how much people invest in the whole experience from yeah. mm-hmm. it's not just the food, it's everything. I experience what I like to call the ambulance, right? Just how things feel uh, in general. But uh, I don't notice the decor, though. It's just like what it's do you, the feeling of the whole place. If you're just throwing out numbers, like what do you think, how many millions of dollars do you think this Michelin star restaurant, your typical Michelin mm. star restaurant throws down to give you that ambiance? 1.2. All right. Well, so there's a, a restaurant in Colorado near and dear to my heart that just spent $40 million what? on a renovation. Oh, I know. Okay, I know. <laughs> I know where you're going. This is clearly Michelin star, don't you think? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. It probably dollars. has more. It's more, more on the tire side of Michelin than the restaurant. <laughs> if folks don't know, because I know we have a worldwide audience, there's a restaurant in Denver, Colorado called Casa Bonita, which has uh, become famous because of a South Park episode. If you've never been, you just got to go, guys. It's it's a truly unique experience. Cliff divers. Cliff divers. Uh, I forget. They said it's like fifty six thousand square feet, which is insane because it's just in a strip mall. Like it doesn't look like it can hold yeah. us. There's what five levels or something. There's it's caves, outrageous. arcades. It's it's really outrageous. I mean, I don't know so, what it's like now after forty million dollars, but I knew what it was like before. <laughs> so crazy is. It was purchased. It went bankrupt during the pandemic, just to give a little background here. And yep. then it was purchased by the South Park creators who happened to be Colorado natives. So they wanted to restore the thing. I think this article that came out of the New York Times by David Williams, uh, or no, the photographs by David Williams, it's by Matt Richelle, breaks down how they thought they might spend $10 million, which is insane for a low-end restaurant like this where the... <laughs> I mean, the food is notoriously. It was bad. so bad. This is like not no, a- no, 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 no. Like so bad. I don't. I couldn't quite understand. But they had the whole shtick, right? The whole shtick. Like you go there for again the ambulance. 
I mean, you weren't going for the food, right? The the funny thing when they talk about redoing the kitchen, they were like, they didn't have basic. They basically had steamers. They yes. they like didn't have ovens in the kitchen, um, so that was part of the demo. Mm. Anyway, the guys came in with a budget of I think ten million. Which it, again, if you haven't been to this yeah. restaurant, you can't even understand how that could be your starting budget. <laughs> they ended up spending north of forty million dollars on this renovation. It opened soon. I think we need to have a show there, Diggles. If not, we're just going to meet up because apparently they have edible food now. You got to go. But is it, does that make it worse though? Because part of the, like part of the charm might've been the fact that you leave and you're like, that was so bad. And then you tell people about how bad it was. Listen, I'm not going to complain about edible food. I'm not going (laughs) for the food anyway, but like if it's edible, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm not going to complain about edible food. The margaritas are actually drinkable too. This place could be. Amazing. Yeah. Guys, that's just a general shout out. If you're in Denver, find a way because getting your head around how someone spent $40 million on a restaurant, you can't do it unless you absolutely step, step foot in the place. It's just not possible. Casa Bonita. There's 100,000 people on the wait list, Diggles, that want to go wow. back. Wow. Casa Bonita. Fun way to kick things off. Appreciate that. I'm going to reach into the fishbowl. I'm going to hit on something investing related. On Squawk Box, you know, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's little show, Squawk Box. Uh, he talked about an interview he had recently with Mark Rowan, who is the CEO of Apollo Management Group, the uh, you know big investment firm. There are a couple of things that he said uh, that uh, Mark Rowan said that I just want to touch on, get your view on, because it sounds like a bunch of nonsense to me. Yeah, I think it might be. I just watched this this morning, so I'm ready. I got hot takes coming your way. (laughs) The two things I want to touch on is first, he says that we are in a, or about to go into, I can't remember which one it was, but a a no recession recession is what he states. And his point is that even when we talk about in our wildest dreams, the disaster that might happen around unemployment, we're talking about going to levels that are like four and a half percent, which is typically a really solid employment rate. And to me, it's it's if I just took that on its own, I'd be like, oh, okay, sure. But it, when I listen to the whole thing, I just realized that he's kind of spitting out a bunch of hot garbage. And this for me, so sorry, Mark Rowan, sorry, not sorry. Like it just seems like he's throwing something out there to, I don't know if it's like appease the masses or sound smart or something like that. But it just doesn't seem like obviously, if people think that four and a half percent is like the worst case scenario, we've seen a lot worse. So like, why do you believe that that actually is the worst case scenario? I couldn't quite wrap my head around that. I don't understand why he's making a prediction. Well, I guess maybe I do because it's part of his job. He has to sound smart. He has to sound like what he knows what's happening in the future. But I think your point is more direct and much more reasonable. Like we don't know. And every time we've thought we knew that banks weren't going to fail in 2023 or that we weren't going to have a pandemic in 2020 or that we weren't going to have a global financial crisis in the (laughs) late odds like i mean we don't know it's garbage to think you know because then you fool yourself into making poor decisions so like i said he said that and i went okay sure whatever so then it continues and he states that there's no alpha in the market to give i'm going to give a high level view on alpha please if you have a, a better a better definition throw it in there but you have you have two things that i'll mention here one is alpha and one is beta 
beta is the performance of the market effectively. And so if you think about beta, the beta of a stock is its correlation to the overall market performance. Alpha means from a risk adjusted basis, do you have an edge? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the easiest way to think about it. So when there's alpha, it means that you can find not maybe not quite arbitrage opportunities. It's not like free risk, but you can find opportunities that on a risk adjusted basis are good bets. Anything else you want to add to that? Or is that a fair definition? <laughs> They're kind of garbage terms that are created so people can do math around volatility and outperformance in the market, but they get talked about a lot and it's important to know the background, I think. But generally, when people are talking about beta, they're talking about matching the market's performance and the volatility associated with that. And when they're talking about alpha, they're talking about outperformance. Yeah. So I think yeah. you did a great job. Yeah, it's a good point to throw volatility in there because that is an important component. So he's saying there's no alpha in the market right now. Then, which I heard that and I went, uh, okay, okay. I mean, I got bones to pick. I'll tell you what bones I got to pick. But then he says, and there hasn't been for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I went, now we're brother real confused. I being the aforementioned brother. Then... Then he he takes that so he took the he took that pile of hot garbage, put more no, garbage it, on top of it, and then I mean, he can says, "Can I jump in?" No, no. Let me <laughs> no, say this. Let me say this next thing. And then he says, "And we know that there hasn't been alpha in the market for twenty years because this is something we've touched on a lot because active portfolio managers have not been able to outperform for twenty years." Because 80 to 90% of active funds underperform their indexes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually means there is alpha because there are people out there beating the market in public markets. Yeah, but, but he's saying he's saying <laughs> that there is an alpha because active portfolio managers are not outperforming. Not and he's not saying that they're not outperforming because they're not because they're not good. Right? <laughs> like or because or, uh some because of them are managing like so some people are actually managing to have lower volatility, which means they plan to underperform. Like yeah, there's all sorts of other strategy. Now, I'm not saying that picking active stocks is easy, or and I'm certainly not saying that outperforming the market is easy. But Douglas, you're hung up on this. I, I want to jump in. I saw the headline, I watched the video, and then I went, Oh, this is absolute garbage. This is just his sales pitch. Do you know what he goes on to say? The only place to get alpha is in private markets. Yes. Effectively through <laughs> Apollo. So like, come talk to me. Like, <laughs> yes, it was talking about everything he says out. It's just a sales pitch. Absolute garbage. I don't know why I do, because you got to fill our time, but I don't know why we put people like this on the financial. No, and the, the way he states it, we'll, we'll put the video on the sub stack so you can get a sense for how he says it. He says it in such a manner that it's like obvious. Like if you, he, he says it like, oh, like I, if anybody's looking at anything, you realize there's no alpha and you realize there's no alpha because people haven't outperformed. I'm just like hot garbage. My belief right now, independent of what happens in the, the market overall, this is a stock picker's market right now. I don't know if I'm not saying that stock picker's market will last for whatever, any particular period of time. But this is a point where the market moving, and we've talked about the concentration in the market, right? The market yeah. moving is not why you would outperform or not right now, because the market is made up of seven stocks. <laughs> yep. So I, I'm not 
we, we are not saying that you should try and buy individual stocks. No, you should not. That's a, a poor idea for 19 out of 20 people, right? But I think we would agree in saying that the advice of just go buy an index fund it, when you're a US-based investor is like uh, very challenged right now for yeah. multiple reasons yeah. that we've talked about on the show over the course of years now. One, the US market is generally expensive. Two, 35% of its concentration is in the top 10 stocks. Mm-hmm. Some of those stocks are like NVIDIA's, which are at insane multiples. And let me tell you a couple other stocks that are at insane multiples right now. Visa is at a price to sales of 15. MasterCard is at a price to sales of 15. Microsoft is at a price to sales of 12. Broadcom is at a price they, to sales they, of 10. Not, hold on. Let's not pick on Broadcom. <laughs> Dougal's <laughs> is a Broadcom holder. Adobe is at a price to sales of 11. I could go on. So the the point you're making as it relates to the CEO of Apollo is like, man, if there's ever a time to try and march to your own drum to zig when everyone else is zagging, like this might be a solid time to be like, hey, I'm not just buying the S&P 500. I'm, I'm adjusting my strategy slightly to get more value. That would be the definition of a stock pictures market in my eyes. Yeah. And I, what I, I said this to you via text, but Mark, sorry, why did I buy Meta stock at 90 bucks a share earlier or, you know, in less than 12 months ago? When it's currently at 270, because there's no alpha left in the public markets. It's one of the biggest stocks there is to trade. Like I, this talking yeah. point, I, I ended up laughing it off. It's just garbage. I just wanna this is this is my own, I can't even call it naivete because I know better. But continued ignorant optimism is I turn some of these things on looking for like, oh, this is gonna be interesting. Like this is gonna be a hot take that I found to be contrarian and instead it's just like hot garbage somebody's trying to make to your point trying to make more management fees and okay i have to sorry to interrupt i have to jump in there are i think five i bet you can come up with more people that if they're on cnbc you should actually listen to howard marks one warren buffett two charlie munger three seth Klarman, if he ever does it but he doesn't really do those type of interviews Morgan Housel, who doesn't do CNBC, but actually is a rational voice. I'm sure I'm missing a few, but basically everyone else is not worth the time to listen to, in my experience. You got any other names for me? Um, I'm trying to think of uh, who was that? Who was that guy who couldn't finish the interview because uh, his audio was interrupted? You know, because <laughs> he was recommending to buy stocks <laughs> that he didn't even know what the company did. That guy. No, yes, he's not that on that list, Eagles. Another classic moment. Another classic moment. No, you're right. There are. There are there are some folks, but oh man, disappointing. Just disappointing. All right. Well, you're trying to get me upset and angry at poor financial advice today. And so the perfect train to continue that on is uh Dave Ramsey. I try not to talk to Dave Ramsey too much on the show because he gets me riled up. I do think some of the basic principles about pay off your debt are really solid personal financial advice that uh, hopefully makes the world a better place. So I try not to throw shade. He um, has done a couple things recently that just I can't keep quiet anymore. He's kind of my Kathy Wood Dougals, I think. The thing is that I hear you not trying to throw shade. But when I look over at the tree and you're just sitting under it, like I don't even need to throw the shade. The shade 
the clouds came over and rained on top of my parade. Okay, and I'm just going <laughs> to yeah, talk about it. Exactly. I'm not throwing you under the bus. Why are you laying under the bus? And I'm just pointing at you. Three weeks ago, I discovered, and I actually, my jaw is still on the floor from this, that Dave Ramsey on his website right now recommends buying mutual funds with a front end load. Okay, this is, <laughs> we have to jump in the time machine, go back, see Michael J. Fox, and we're <laughs> in the 80s now. It, the people listening to the show don't even know what a front end load mutual fund is because this is literally 40 years old okay. where they used to charge additional fees to buy into a mutual fund. And you could either do that, you'd pay the fee up front. So not only does he recommend buying that, which means he's stealing your money, he's, he's stealing money of the people that he's that are using his website for financial advice. He also talks about it, Spencer Asia's around 1%. So I can guarantee the people he's sending his radio audience to are paying a ridiculous amount of fees compared to like a Vanguard, a Fidelity, anywhere else. That gets me riled up. This week, he's in the news because he's facing a $150 million lawsuit for endorsing Timeshare X team, which actually didn't get anyone out of their timeshares and collected ridiculous upfront fees. There's an example in here of someone that paid $72,000 up front because they promised they could get them out of the timeshare. Guess what? They didn't get them out of the timeshare. The there, name of you... the company is Timeshare Exit Team. Sorry. The name of the company was Timeshare Exit Team until they realized the only thing they didn't do was help people to exit timeshare. So they changed it to like something Goodwin and Associates or, or like some, some, something like that. I mean, they've already Continue. paid a settlement over deceptive promises in the state of Washington, and they don't appear to have gotten anyone out of a timeshare. <laughs> Again, the name of the company is Timeshare Exitude. They were on, wholly endorsed by Dave Ramsey and on his show a ton, and he made a ton of money off them. It was I like $30 million or something like that. $30 million. There's those two points. If you Google Dave Ramsey, you could find other, there's whole other stuff about the workplace and deceptive practices that I don't even want to discuss here. The last thing I want to mention today is this clip you just sent me of him losing his mind when someone calls into the show and tells them that their house actually has lost value <laughs> since purchased in the last two years. How, how do you live in a world where you think that's not possible? Like he honestly looks like... <laughs> Losing yeah, money this, in real estate is not possible. Yeah, this person calls in yeah, and says, like, I bought a house and it was a year ago, right? I mean, these these things are long-term investments, just things in general to be long-term investments, whatever you're talking about. They said, I bought a house about a year ago. It went down. And the look on the faces of Dave, Dave Ramsey, I'm not sure who the name of his co-host is, the look on their faces were like, what? What, what, what did you do wrong? Whatever could you have done wrong? Like you must have done something wrong because, and they're like, no, I, I mean, I bought a house that that same house is now valued less. What could have potentially happened in the, I mean, in what, the interim? What has happened? Yeah. What has happened in the past 12 months? Oh, rates went from zero to 5%. <laughs> like that's the fed fund rates. That's not even mortgage rates. Mortgage rates went from three to seven and a half. Like that changes the value of a property because the large, large majority of people finance their, yeah. uh, Anyway, oh, by, I... by the way, quick shout out, quick shout out here. So this clip was tweeted out by uh, Ramit Sethi. Have you watched his show recently? He wrote a book about 
12, 13 years ago as well. I consumed um, uh, the podcast. So I know. I know. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a Netflix show uh, that's called How to Get Rich, and it's a, a clickbaity type of title, same as as his book, which is I will teach you how to be rich. But it's not about like get rich quick seems by any means. What he does in this Netflix show is he goes and meets with uh, with couples who are like having financial troubles and helps them to do things like get out of debt, think about their spending, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's like baseline things. I'd recommend it. It's an enjoyable show for you. So just shout out to all you folks that have Netflix out there. How to get rich. Yeah, one of the um, cool principles he has is spending a little more time focusing on how you spend money rather than just how you save money. Yep. Because so many people, and I'm sure we're guilty of this, Diggles, would like imply that you know you have to put 15% aside for retirement and then 10% aside in your emergency fund. And it ends up being this nonstop course of do this when you save. But yep. if you don't think about how to spend that in a way that like makes your life better, you might be missing half the equation. I really like that approach for him there's certainly things i disagree with him on but hey i'll say it this way he's not nearly as bad as dame ramsey so there we go <laughs> yes yeah, so, so there's that <laughs> he's got that going for him i'm gonna reach into the fishbowl for something that i've never heard him say a way to spend your money is to go to vegas and play terrible odds blackjack reason i'm bringing up blackjack and there were two different people sent this over so blowing up on the the, the internet's the Wall Street Journal had this piece about changing odds out in Las Vegas. And I didn't know this was a thing. I don't, I don't play, uh, well, here's what I'll say. When I play the roulettes and the blackjack, it's pure gambling. And it's just to see how the day is going to go. That's it. I go up, I put the money on black, and I'm like, this, is good. this dictates the rest of my day. And you know what? It's never good. It's never good. <laughs> it never really works out. So um, when you lose so, and you get this message that your day is going to be terrible, like do you just go back to your yeah. room and go to sleep? So, or what? so there's there's a, one of two takeaways, right? First, black hits. If black hits, I'm like, boom! It's going to be an amazing day. Let's get after it. Yeah. If black doesn't hit, I go all my bad luck's out of the way. Let's get after it. <laughs> this is so great. The the best part is I'm going to be in Vegas with you in not too long. And I can't, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to witness true. this. And my value investor brain is going to explode. I'm going to be like sucking my thumb in the corner watching you burn money. <laughs> uh, so this Wall Street Journal piece talks, I'm going to lay out a few facts because it talks about how on roulette and blackjack, there are changing odds uh, that the house is is putting out there. So first, let me say this. Blackjack players last year, how much money do you think they lost in Vegas on the Strip? Uh, $10 billion. Not $1 billion, but okay. that is the, it's the second highest loss on record. The highest loss is 2007. Um, so right before the great financial crisis. This is like a good um, recession indicator. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's something, it's something. I, I am going to give my, my like, I don't know, takeaway from this. But Las Vegas, that's related to that. Uh, Las Vegas Strip Casinos took in nearly $8.3 billion in gambling revenue last year. That exceeded the pre-pandemic revenue by more than 25%. If you put those two things together, people are gambling 25% more money and losing more money. High level. 
in blackjack in particular, if you hit blackjack, so blackjack is when you get an ace and another card that's worth 10. So it could be a 10 or one of the face cards and you get that immediately. That's blackjack. The game would pay out three to two. So for every, if you bet $10, you hit blackjack, you get 15 bucks. Right Now, blackjack tables are paying out six to five, which means on that same $10, you get $12. They just change the odds. It's a massive change. I mean, it's really. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge change. In roulette, what, what many of the tables have now done in roulette is they've added triple zero. So I talked about roulette, black, red, right? Mm -hmm. So the way a roulette table, if you haven't played roulette, the, the way that the roulette wheel is laid out is that you have a whole bunch of black numbers and you have an even number of red numbers. And then you have a green zero. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to be black, red, or it could be neither. There's a chance that it's neither, right? And so that gives the house an edge over just betting on colors. I mentioned one zero. They added double zero. So now that so now there's triple zero <laughs> roulette. So they just keep changing the odds so there's that no matter three green squares, green that's, not squares, but green that, options. That's, that's what I'm reading here. And so this article is saying historically they used a wheel with 38 slots, 18 black, 18 red, and then with the zero and double zero with those two, it's two greens. This adds one more, which lifts the, the house advantage. And it seems like they are increasing the number of tables like pretty aggressively that that have this triple zero. Um, almost it wasn't even, I can't remember what the numbers were exactly, but it was something like 40% of tables now have this. So people are spending more, they're losing more, and they don't seem to care, right? Is is the is kind of the takeaway. This reminds me of inflation. Yes. In a in a way it is inflation. But here's what happens with inflation. And we go back to one of my favorite things, which is a breakfast burrito, right? You pay five dollars for the thing for a decade. Yep. And then they raise it to five and a quarter, and then all of a sudden it's six bucks and whatever. Like that you you are going to buy this back for Spirito for 20 years and it raises to 650 and then seven. And then one day you wake up, you roll out of bed, you go and they say like 1175 and you go, hmm, my core habits are built into this and the little nudges, the little price increases didn't really matter. But all of a sudden I wake up and I go, I don't want to spend $11 on this. Like it's no longer worth it. And I think what I'm trying to articulate there is the, long unintended consequences that where things move away from their true value i think the reason people go to vegas is because you want a decent chance of winning you want to throw ten dollars down and have 15 thrown back your way yep. and there's an enjoyment that comes with that and i don't expect this to change in the near term but i think at some point down the road people will go you know what every time i go I don't even like win, 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 and then eventually lose, which is what happens in casinos, right? You, the more you play, you lose. It's yep. like I go and I lose, and then I lose some more, and then I lose again, and then I go home. You know, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like you can only do this too much without yeah. completely messing with the human psyche in a way where it's no longer fun. Agreed. And and this is where you know the when I talk about market crashes, my view on market crashes is when you look at the reason that a market crashed, whatever the tipping point was, it's usually something that happens all the time. Like it's it's not like some big thing occurred that was different. 
Uh, like what I mean is companies go bankrupt all the time. Yep. Interest rates might hike. It happens like a decent amount. But when these things happen at a point where the market is incredibly fragile, it like can't catch itself and ends up falling a lot. Very overly simplified, but like that's kind of my view. And I think this is to your point, it's like one of those, this is like one of those versions of that, where when you keep pushing things to the edge, consumers in this case, you keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And then at some point you wake up and don't want the eleven dollar burrito. Mm -hmm. And when the the economy is is basically built off of eleven dollar burritos and nobody wants them anymore, it like can happen overnight all of a sudden. Everybody wakes up and you're like, oh crap. Actually, my $23,000 credit card balance isn't okay. Yeah. And then when that collective group decides that, like things can fall off a cliff, right? Like that's, that's the way that things happen. And this is just, it just feels so freaking greedy. It, that greedy is the right um, word for it. I mean, it, it, so if you follow Vegas hotel rates, which I can't claim I do closely, but I've been there recently enough, like, I mean, yeah. you're now five to seven hundred bucks a night is not it's seems wild. like fairly typical, which it's is wild. pretty wild. And yeah. then, I guess I just appreciate you bringing this up because if I walk through any hotel casino with triple zeros on the roulette table, man, I'm just keep on walking. I think this is a good way to figure out who's ripping <laughs> you off because if they're ripping you off on the roulette table, they're ripping you off with the bottled water and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. The greed yeah. has to be per basic here the next time i walk up and i'm like i'm gonna put it on black hold on there is no black just <laughs> <laughs> no it's like uh 70 green and then there's a few blacks and a few yeah, reds exactly and you're not allowed to bet on green because that's the house <laughs> <laughs> oh it makes sense what else you got in the bowl of fish all right so your boy lionel messi uh was a free agent oh this made me so excited and i don't even know I mean, I don't know how to articulate this. Here was an offer that he reportedly turned down. Three years of playing soccer. I mean, he's already won the World Cup and everything. Like at this point in the twilight of his career, I'm going to call it, him playing soccer could be like him jogging out onto the field for 20 minutes a game. And I think people would be delighted. Three years, <laughs> 1.6 billion with a B dollars let's just do some rounding and say that's 500 million a year yes that's breathtaking i mean the guys like lebron makes 50 60 million a year in terms of his pay for playing uh basketball this is an entirely different world of compensation it's wild and it's what uh ronaldo took that maybe not that exact deal but yeah they, the saudis basically paid him hundreds of millions of dollars a year Right, so Ronaldo is playing over there. So that was uh, 12 months ago, right? I thought that was more 200 to 400 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, sorry. Yes, but multiple <laughs> hundreds. Yes, you're Multiple you're right. hundreds of million per year, which is absolutely insane. But it's not 500 million per year. And then the amazing thing is he turns down that deal for more of an incentive-laden contract yep. with Miami, Inter-Miami, who's in the MLS, and that is reported to include a sh share of his jersey sales, kit sales, if we're really talking soccer here, a share of the Apple TV season pass revenue, and an option to buy into the club uh, once he retires. The club yeah. is owned by David Beckham, who uh, ran this game many years ago to come play in the U.S. and actually turned that into owning a club. Yep. He bought 
inner Miami for 25 million, I believe. And now they think it's worth 600 million and probably worth significantly more than that after Messi plays there. Here's another stat to boggle your mind. And then I promise to be quiet. Currently, tickets for soccer in Miami are more expensive than tickets for the NBA finals, which is currently underway in Miami. Isn't that <laughs> insane? Yes, it is. it's quite insane. And they jumped overnight, obviously. Yeah. The the thing that Messi I have not read that Messi said or heard that Messi said, and maybe maybe this isn't true, but it's what I want to believe, is that you also just don't want to go play in Saudi Arabia. I think that's gotta be because of the um I'll call it the political side, but like the very checkered past with where that money comes yeah. from. Yeah. Because even in the world where we say, you know, owning capital is more worthwhile over the long term than than income. When he's going to be making a tenth, like fr- from a cash perspective, a tenth of what he would be making over in Saudi Arabia, you, that's a pretty big bet that you're you're betting on. Like what what the the future team that you can buy or your Apple contract is going to be, and so I mean financially, it's going to be good, like golden, regardless financially, like good to go. I think a part of this also had to be like I really don't want to play in Saudi Arabia. I'd rather move my family over to the U.S. I'd rather like it, you know, like all of that stuff. I think it has to. I'm be sure. Yeah, I'm sure that's a part. But what's so crazy is when numbers get this large, it almost doesn't matter. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> practically, in terms of your day to day life, the difference between making even fifty million a year and five hundred million a year, I don't know that it changes a single thing. Now, I'm never gonna know either because. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a... <laughs> my talents are not worth that but i i see so i'd be fascinated to talk to him about how he thinks about those dynamics like what how big the number has to be before it doesn't matter anymore or if there's always that competitive nature of like yeah. i want to be the best compensated athlete in the world by two times maybe that's a meaningful thing just from a competition perspective fascinating stuff Another sign of a bubble, Dougals. <laughs> I like you to throw that in there. I have one more thing in the fishbowl, and I'm going to stick on sports. This is in the Philadelphia Inquirer. There's an article about Brandon Marsh, plays for the Phillies. What I found, and tell me if I'm making a leap, but I don't think I'm making too much of a leap. I found this to be interesting because, so it's baseball. I found this to be interesting because it's talking about how Brandon Marsh worked to simplify his swing that allowed him to see the ball better. And then he goes in to describe, and this brought me back to the world of investing. In my mind, he's just talking about baseball. He's talking about some baseball. But he says being able to see the ball better enabled him to control the at-bat versus being controlled by the at-bat. And he calls it, I love this, controlled aggression. That, to me, is very investor-aligned. He says, if you're too aggressive, you try to chase out of the zone, right? So he means like the strike zone. So if you're getting too aggressive, something might be outside the strike zone, you go for it. And so what he started doing now, swinging less, choosing the right pitches. And here are some of the results that have come from that. If you're into baseball, you'll get this. If you're not, I apologize, but just stick on the controlled aggression theme. His walk rate, so the number of times he gets on base by getting too many balls, uh, or not too many balls to the pitcher, him just the right amount of balls. His walk rates doubled from 6.1% to 14%. So he's getting on base more just from walks because he's not swinging at those pitches that are outside the strike zone. 
he's he's also he's so he's changed he's dropped his swing rate from 47.6 percent to 40 percent so a seven absolute percentage point drop in number of swings he's taking so he's striking out less his strikeout rate has gone from about 34 percent to 30 percent chasing less pitches controlled aggression when he sees the right pitch he goes for it these are the results i think it's a pretty cool investment analogy here in the world of sports yeah and to bring this back to compensation if these trends continue he might have made himself $10 million a year in terms of the difference in his yeah. performance and how yeah. valuable that is to his team being able to win. Have you ever read a book called The Inner Game of Tennis? No, I have not. Okay. So one of the most bizarre things you'll hear in the investing community, at least it was a bizarre to me before I read it, is you, sometimes you talk to people about the best investing book. And this book, The Inner Game of Tennis, will be recommended to you. And you'll be like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> That's a game about tennis. And they'll be like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, just go read it. It's by a tennis pro. Once you read it, you see a lot of these same themes. You, the controlled aggression yeah. that you like and everything else. And it's the mindset for how you attack this challenge that can be applied in many places. And investing is a great place for it. That book's really solid. And it's almost a parallel to what is being described here i like this article really good stuff oh, and thank you for the recommendation i'll have to pick that up we talk about this a bunch in the end analytics within the world of investing is table stakes you have to put in the time and the analytics you got to do it but where the returns over the long term are made it's all about psychology decision making control and discipline and that's what separates out most people so I'm going to read your tennis book, and we'll put this baseball article on the substack. Controlled aggression. If you're too aggressive, you try to chase out of the zone. Stick within your zone. Yeah, I have a story there um, of a decision I made this week that hopefully relates, but you can be my counselor on this, Deagles. So um, because I've been so fired up about uh, NVIDIA being overpriced, Ooh. I have been researching. I've been researching if there's a way to take a bet against that. Um, I mentioned this three episodes back. This is not something you guys or anyone should do, but there are ways to do this. And I was carefully, you know, I had my spreadsheet going basically to figure out what bet I was taking and if it all made sense. And I was really aggressive to be conservative on the price I would pay to have to do this thing. All set up, the prices come down, ready to take the that I ended up pulling it off the table. And do you, you know why I ended up oh, pulling it off the table? No, why? Because I realized that even if that pitch, that there's a fat pitch coming my way, I realized two things. One, there's going to be another fat pitch that would come my way soon. Yep. yep. Two, I wasn't going to be able to enjoy winning that. If mm. I made lots of money there, I wasn't going to enjoy it. This would have been a two and a half year bet against NVIDIA yep. stock effectively. And for those two and a half years, I realized that I'd probably be anxious most of the time. And then if my money doubled or tripled, I'd probably want to pull it off the table at that point. So like, basically, I made a conclusion that the anxiety that came with this wasn't worth doubling or tripling my money, even if I think that's what's going to happen. And the only way that this could make sense is if I don't double or triple my money. It's if my money goes up 10x, right? Or or more. Yeah. But even that, I don't feel like the anxiety in knowing my investing style and knowing how I like to buy 
the real deep value in my eyes, the shooting fish in a barrel type investments. Um, I just decided that it wasn't worth the stress basically. Now, I don't know if that's a good decision or not. And I'm very tempted to like track, you know, put this in my journal, my investing journal Mm -hmm. and say, this is the decision I decided not to make. But even if the outcome two and a half years from now is oh, I would have 10x my money, I still think the roller coaster ride I would have signed myself up for is probably not worth it. You can track this if you want from an academic perspective, but in the end, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's it's not a financial decision that you just made. So the financial outcome has very little to do with the decision, in my view. I don't remember why we talked about this, but there was something a few months ago where we talked about the concept of uh, the decision you're actually making. And sometimes when you, you, you're making a decision that seems like it's, it's just one decision, but that decision represents something. It's symbolic of a group of other decisions that you might make in the future because mm-hmm. you made this one. And for me with uh, NVIDIA, because you were talking about NVIDIA, right? And trying to figure out a way. So I was looking at NVIDIA put options and where I got to was this, it's for a different reason, but same outcome where I got to, as I went, I feel pretty confident. That doesn't mean it's going to be right. Like it might very well be wrong, but I feel pretty confident that NVIDIA is going to fall off a cliff at some point. Yeah, me too. They, they, they could, they could 30 X their profits this year and could be absolutely wrong and whatever, but I feel pretty confident. But you know, a few months ago, I, uh, I bought those Alibaba options and uh, so made that bet because at the time when I was looking at what was on the table, I was like, this feels like the right thing to do here for Alibaba. I got lucky. It turned out to be a good bet. But when I was thinking about buying the NVIDIA put options, I went, am I now someone that buys options? Like that was what like went into my head. And I and I went, no, like I have if, uh, you know, if the Dougal's indicator goes off, I will buy put options on the market. Like that is yeah. a thing I'll do. That's part of a system. And I feel better about that. But this, I went, I bought Alibaba call options a few months ago. If I'm buying put options now, am I someone that buys options? And so the next time that something comes around, do I buy options? And I just went, no. Like, that is not what I want to be. So therefore, regardless of the financial outcome here, I don't want to buy the options. I'm doing fine otherwise. (laughs) Like, there there isn't a, there's no reason. There's no reason for it outside of the fact that we could then talk about it, (laughs) right? And so I don't want to be a person that buys options. So that's why I didn't get into it. Same outcome. I like your perspective there that it's not really a financial decision. And I think um, that's hard because you're entirely right. I made this decision not because of the dollars and cents of it, because the uh, risk reward relationship with my emotions wasn't going to be worth it. But it is sometimes you see gosh, I don't know. You see the butterfly flying by and you want to go play with the thing. Like this is just a distraction <laughs> thing. I, I'm just yeah. so fascinated with how over it skis the valuation for NVIDIA is that I almost want to take a bet on it just to, I guess, have the last laugh or something. But that's idiotic. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's absolutely idiotic. I like, I just got to look the other way. The train wreck is here and I just got to look the other way. And I decided to look the other way this week. So I hope that's the right call. Yeah, it sounds like it is for your own psyche. And financially, who cares? You're going to do great. I got one last thing. It's just an article I'd recommend. It's by Nick Magjuli. I think I'm saying that right. On Twitter, at Dollars and Data. The headline of this article says it all. If you're so rich, 
<laughs> why are you desperate? And it generally talks through what's so common on social media, which is like, look at me. I started three businesses and sold them all for tens of millions of dollars. And now I'm selling my course to tell you how to do the same thing. And I think Nick's larger point here is simply, dude, really? If you got tens of million dollars, like just be quiet and go have fun. <laughs> like, why do you got to sell me a course? <laughs> and I, I like that perspective. I think that's really a solid perspective of, of, for people on all sides. Because anyone, Douglas, as you know, that starts a company and sells it for a hundred million, there's a large aspect of luck involved. There's also a lot of skill and a lot of hard work. I'm not discrediting anything, but there's no template for success where you just do these seven steps and then you go make a hundred million dollars. That's not how this works. Yeah, I think the like point well taken, and I agree that it's solid. I think that there's value in in other people being able to see what steps were taken, like looking under the hood in a specific and granular way and not much value. And like, here are the five things to do in order to repeat <laughs> what I just did, like, which I think is different. When I say under the hood, I mean, like uh, it's, you know, we talked about with the wedding when I got married, I have a whole spreadsheet. I got all the spreadsheets. And when other people are like, I'm going to get married. Cool. I'm going to send you all my spreadsheets. No one wants to look at my spreadsheets. Like, let's, let's be clear. No, yeah. no one wants to look at them, but I think there's value in it. Cause it's what I wanted. Like when we were planning the wedding, I saw all these, like on average, this is what this costs on average. That's what that costs. And I'm like, okay, but how exactly did, do you build that up? Like how much was, you know, dot, 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 whatever the line item was. I want to see that kind of stuff. So I think there's value in that, but to yeah. go back, I think, I think the greater point around yeah, if you made a hundred million dollars, you don't need this. Like this article talks a lot about, like you don't need to do this, but it's about the game, not about the the money in the end. Like the chasing is the fun part. And so therefore people can't stop chasing. And sometimes it's just like, just can just actually can you just stop chasing? Well, that's a funny analogy where Nick goes, which is like tries to understand the emotions of why they might want to do this, even if it's not about yeah. the pitching in some cases it is about the pitch it's because the paper wealth that they are selling on social media isn't actually life-changing so they need a job yeah um but in other cases it might be the desire for con connection and like it meaning effectively yeah. is yeah. you have to go out and sell that it's fascinating because you're totally right like i love the, the how i built this podcast and other things mm -hmm. that detail kind of how businesses are built and what the journey looks like. So I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. I just, the dichotomy here is really interesting and it's, it happens everywhere. So it's yeah. fun to think about. I think Nick, Nick did an artful job of breaking down um, this from a couple different angles here. Agreed. Thank you for listening today, everybody. Remember skippydougals at gmail.com. You can fire over articles, questions, thoughts, we love it. Thank you to everybody that does. And skippydougals.com is where you can find access to links for our Substack, skippydougals.substack.com, or skippydougals.supercast.com. You can find that. That's where our premium offerings are. So skippydougals.com, go to it. You'll see all our stuff. And appreciate you all for listening. Yeah.